everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of season 5. If you've been listening to the show for a while then thank you for returning and if you're new here, welcome. Each of my seasons contains 10 episodes and at the start of each episode I've got two opening segments just to break the ice a little bit. The first one is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. This week's Dad Fact is... After signing his first contract for Goldeneye, Piers Brosnan was forbidden from wearing a full tuxedo in any non-James Bond movie from 1995 to 2002. Interesting fact. He is my favourite James Bond. Controversial. Probably second Sean Connery, but I do like Piers Brosnan. Probably because I grew up in the 90s. Born late 80s. Grew up in the 90s. Here's my favourite Bond. Favourite Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. Great film. Segment two of my opening icebreakers sounds like this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5, and it's meant to be read in one breath. Author Rose Bundy has kindly sent me a copy of The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku 2, sent it me a while back, so that's where Season 5's haiku is coming from. Season 4's haiku came from the first Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. There's a link in the bio if you're into this kind of stuff. But here is this week's haiku. Just going to pick the first one on the page. Short, sharp, brutal shocks. Intolerable pictures painted. Not for the squeamish. There's not a picture on this one. It's just black. But yeah, that was a haiku. Thanks for sending that in, Rose. And with my intro complete, let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested by two of my listeners. Kat Luth sent an email to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com way back in September 2021, asking me to cover this case. And then Gary Robinson reached out via Instagram, sent me a DM on there in November 2021, wanted me to cover it as well. Now with season 5, it's the same as season 4, it's made up entirely of listener-suggested cases. We're in Brighton this week, which is a seaside resort within the city of Brighton and Hove. Brighton used to be its own town with its own local government, but it merged with the neighbouring town of Hove in 1997 to form the United Authority of Brighton and Hove, which has been classed as a city since the year 2000. Here's five quick-fire facts about Brighton. The 1974 Eurovision Song Contest was held in Brighton. That was the year that ABBA won it. Brighton is home to Duke of York's Picture House, the oldest cinema in Britain and one of the oldest cinemas in the world. Brighton is sometimes referred to as London by Sea. A lot of day travellers apparently. And it's the only town in Britain with a Grade 1 listed pier, referring to Brighton's West Pier. The final quickfire fact... The Brighton Sea Life Centre is the world's oldest aquarium, dating all the way back to 1872. Maybe they've got some turtles that are still alive from back then. I doubt it. Now, I've never been to Brighton, but if any of my listeners are locals or you've visited Brighton, let me know what your favourite part of the city is. You'll notice this episode is titled The Babes in the Wood Murders. Did you know that's the title of a 16th century English children's tale? It's not a story you'd tell your child while snuggling before bed, though. It's about two young children who get abandoned in the woods and die. 
their bodies subsequently get covered with leaves by a round of robins. Not exactly Jack and the Beanstalk, is it? The term babes in the wood is a frequently used expression by the media when it comes to murder cases, specifically those involving the deaths of two or more children whose bodies were found in woodland areas. Sadly, this week's case is no different. The villain of this week's episode is a man named Russell Bishop. Born on February 9th, 1966, Bishop stands at around 5 foot 5, a full 4 inches below the average male height in the UK, and he weighs about 10 stone dripping wet. To say he suffers from little man syndrome, also known as Napoleon complex, would be more than accurate. Bishop had a tendency to exaggerate stories and conjure up elaborate lies in order to make himself seem more important than he actually was. One such claim was when Bishop said he was wrongly arrested in connection with the 1984 IRA bombing of the Grand Hotel in Brighton. Why he wanted to be in some way connected to that horrific event is anyone's guess. Having said that, Bishop, who was the youngest one of five brothers, had learning difficulties and he struggled at school. He suffers from dyslexia, and at the age of 15, he was sent to a school that specialises in educating children affected by moderate learning disabilities. He was eventually withdrawn from school altogether and homeschooled by his parents Roy and Sylvia Bishop. Sylvia was an authoritarian and a Crufts-winning dog trainer. Roy, on the other hand, was a humble roofer, who kept the family in check when Sylvia was away working. Our story starts in 1986, the year of the Chernobyl nuclear power station disaster. This story involves the murder of two children, by the way, so feel free to stop listening if you're likely to find this episode distressing. In 1986, the then 20-year-old Bishop lived in a flat in the Hollingdean area of Brighton, and he was working as a roofer, like his dad. He was also a petty thief, and he'd regularly break into parked cars and just steal whatever he could get his hands on. Bishop had not one, but two female love interests. His official partner was 20-year-old Jennifer Johnson, but Bishop also had a 16-year-old teenage girlfriend named Marion Stevenson. Given Bishop's very public infidelity towards Jenny, it's safe to say he wasn't well-liked in the local community. With his straight hair and young adult attempt at a moustache, Bishop looked like a typical 80s English lad. He didn't half think of himself as a bit of a Jack the Lad too, racing about in his car like he owned the streets. On the evening of October 9th, 1986, not long after 4pm, Bishop, along with Marion Stevenson, as well as her friend Tracy Cox, knocked on the door of the Fellows' house. The Fellows' family was made up of 37-year-old Barry Fellows, his 37-year-old wife of 16 years, Susan, their 14-year-old son, Jonathan, their 9-year-old daughter, Nicola, and Susan's mum, Edna. The house was located on Lewick Road, just a stone's throw away from Wild Park, a local nature reserve in Brighton. A year earlier, in 1985, Barry's friend Dougie Judd, a 21-year-old who was 16 years Barry's junior, was living at home with his mum, but they had a bit of a fallout. Dougie asked Barry if he could stay at the three-bedroomed house with the Fellows family, to which Barry said, of course you can. As a result, young Nicola was asked to share a bedroom with her grandma, which freed up the downstairs bedroom for Dougie. Quite a cramped house. It was Dougie who Russell Bishop was looking for on the evening of October 9th. 
Nicola was the one who answered the door and told Bishop that Dougie wasn't there. The youngster then slammed the door in Bishop's face while calling Marion Stevenson a slag. This exchange was heard by a lady named Michelle Hadaway, who was the mother of Nicola's best friend and fellow nine-year-old Karen Hadaway. Michelle just happened to be over at the fellow's house at the time Bishop knocked on the door. She was also not a fan of the 21-year-old and had forbidden Karen from ever going anywhere near him. By 5pm that evening, Nicola, Karen and Karen's sister Lindsay were playing outside with some of the other children from the neighbourhood. Back in those days, it was perfectly normal for kids to be playing outside unsupervised. You'd be out there playing and playing until your mum shouted your name from the front door. That meant your tea was ready. Or dinner. Whatever you call your evening meal. We call it tea in Yorkshire. I imagine it will have been exactly the same for Nicola and Karen. Finish school, go home, play outside with your mates, come back when your tea's ready. There was a playground that the girls would mess about in with all the other kids. It was so close to their homes that Susan and Michelle, respectively, could simply look out the windows periodically to check up on the girls from a distance. Those were the days. Karen had ditched her school shoes and replaced them with some comfier pink trainers before leaving her house to play. Can't have been a very cold evening, because Karen ditched her jacket as well. The two best friends decided to go off and do their own thing after playing with the other kids for a short while, and they made their way to Wild Park. Now, it wasn't like either of them to miss their tees, but sometimes when you're in the moment with your mates, you just don't care. You often lose track of time. They likely knew they'd get a stern telling off upon their return home, but that was something they felt they could handle, and it was worth the good time they were having. Over the next couple of hours, they were spotted in various places nearby by several witnesses. Roy Dadswell, the park keeper at Wild Park, saw the girls at around 5.15pm. They were playing in a large tree near the area of Lewes Road that is opposite a row of shops. The ever-diligent Roy warned the girls to be careful as they might hurt themselves if they fell from the tree. Now Roy wasn't alone. He was accompanied by a local resident named Albert Barnes, or simply Bert, who was walking his dog at the time. The four of them spoke for a few minutes and the girls left each of the two men a parting gift of a leaf before toddling off. Bert then left the park with his dog and Roy continued with his duties. At around the same time the girls were speaking to Roy and Bert, a lady named Dorinda Brackenridge, along with her brother Paul, spotted Russell Bishop walking along the central reservation of Caldine Lane. Russell popped over and spoke with Paul to inform him that his car, a red Ford Escort, had broken down. But before he walked off, Bishop also told Paul about an apparent shoulder injury he'd received whilst playing football. Dorinda recalled that Bishop was wearing a light blue jumper that night. More on that later. At around 6.15pm, Karen and Nicola were spotted by Wendy Robertson, a local resident, leaving the Barkham Road Fish and Chip Shop. They'd each bought a bag of chips. Or fries. Janet Reed, another local resident who knew Nicola, spotted the girls with what she thought to be a bag of chips each at around 6.25pm. Janet recalls Nicola spotting her and giving her a bit of a wave. At around 6.35pm, a motorist named Kevin Carhart said he saw two young girls on the central reservation of Lewes Road about to cross into Wild Park. Around that same time, the girls bumped into 14-year-old Michelle Tippett. They told Michelle they were heading back up to Wild Park, to which Michelle advised it'd be wise for them to tell their mums so they knew where they were. Unfortunately, the girls ignored Michelle's advice. 
The girls were also seen by Sean Nye, a student at the same school as Nicola. Sean spotted the girls at what he remembers as being roughly 6.30pm, walking past a police box. Bringing the story back to Russell Bishop briefly, after his interaction with Dorinda Brackenridge and her brother Paul, he was next seen at around 6.30pm by brothers Mark and Kevin Doyle. Mark knew who Bishop was as they both played football for Barry Fellows' team. The Doyle brothers both saw Bishop walking past the police box at around the same time, if not just before, or more likely just after, Karen and Nicola. As far as I can tell, the sightings by Sean Nye and the Doyle brothers were the last ones that evening for Bishop and the two girls. Lee Hadaway, Karen's father, wasn't home on the evening of October 9th as he'd been driving his lorry until around 10.15pm the previous evening and wanted to make an early start the next day. He phoned home at around 6pm on October 9th and it was then that Michelle advised Lee that she didn't know where Karen was. She'd only left home an hour earlier but she could no longer see her playing from outside her window. Lee agreed to call back in about half an hour for an update. When he next called, Karen was still nowhere to be seen, so Michelle decided to walk over to the fellow's house to speak with Susan. Michelle knew that Karen had been with Nicola, as her other daughter Lindsay had told her as much. The two mothers ventured outside and asked the other children if they knew where the girls had gone. They eventually found out that they'd headed towards Wild Park after speaking with a boy who claimed to have seen them talking to Roy Dadswell, the park keeper. Michelle and Susan conducted a brief search of Wild Park, calling the girls' names as they did, but decided to return home in case Karen and Nicola had decided to call it a night. Upon their return, concerns grew as the girls were still missing. The police were called at 8.36pm by Michelle, and a large number of officers were soon searching the local area for the two missing nine-year-olds. Having found nothing, PC Pete Cole and his team were told to stand down at 2am. 30 minutes later, having started to make inquiries at houses in the local area, the police knocks on Russell Bishop's door. Jenny, who was pregnant at the time, answered the door and led the officers to the bedroom where Bishop was asleep. Bishop explained that he had seen Nicola at her house when he was looking for Dougie Judd and then saw both Nicola and Karen later on speaking to Roy Dadswell. The police returned to speak to Bishop at 10am that morning to question him further as he was one of the last people to see the girls before they disappeared. As he had told Paul, Bishop explained that his red Ford Escort had broken down and he therefore had to walk home. He claimed to have visited a local newsagent to buy a paper but he had no money, so he sheepishly left the shop. Bishop could not recall what time he got home, but he said he'd been wearing a blue top and jeans. Jenny retrieved a blue sweatshirt from the bedroom with a white stripe across it, which Bishop confirmed was the top he was wearing. Satisfied, the officers left Bishop to get on with his day. As the darkness became light on the morning of October 10th, the entire local community, as well as a handful of officers, continued looking for the missing girls. A breakthrough finally came not long after 4pm when Kevin Rowland and his friend Matthew Marchant spotted a body in a makeshift den in Wild Park. The two boys were around 10 feet away when they realised what they'd found and had no intention of getting any closer. Instead, one of them remained at the scene and the other went off to find an officer. In another area of the park, Russell Bishop was walking his dog Misty and bumped into Officer PC Paul Smith known locally as Smudge. 
After explaining that he was looking for the girls, despite Misty clearly not being a tracker dog, Bishop surmised that the girls had likely either gone north or were dead. He then said that he was stopping his search because if he found the girls and they were dead, he'd get nicked. For any non-British listeners, to be nicked means to be arrested. A bizarre thing to say to a police officer, no? When asked why he thought he'd get nicked, Bishop said it was due to him having a criminal record. Just as he said that, Officer Smudge heard a young boy shouting at him whilst running, getting closer and closer. He was shouting, We've found them! over and over again. Bishop, who was much lighter and quicker than Smudge, ran off with the boy whilst the larger officer slowly followed behind them. Smudge asked Bishop to keep the boys away from the crime scene if he got there before him. As Bishop reached the clearing where the two boys had discovered the body, he attempted to take a few steps closer. Kevin stopped him from doing so just as Smudge arrived on the scene. How are the girls? the out-of-breath officer asked. Despite not getting any closer than Kevin or Matthew, and therefore being unable to confirm how they were, Bishop replied, They're fucking dead. The sheer ridiculousness of that statement is unbelievable. There's no possible way that Bishop could have seen more than one body from where he was stood, and to know the condition of said body? Impossible. Unless, of course, he was the one that put it there. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Smudge had to crawl on his belly through the undergrowth in order to reach the clearing. When he finally got there, he saw a truly horrifying sight. The bodies of both Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway were there. Nicola was lying face up with her legs up. Her face was bruised, she had blood all over her nose. Karen was lying on her left side at a right angle to Nicola's body, with her head face down on Nicola's lap. After checking both girls' necks for a pulse, Smudge came to the realisation that neither of them were alive. Smudge called it in and the area was soon cordoned off by police. The parents of each girl were soon informed and they, along with the entire community, were heartbroken. Remember earlier when I said Bishop was wearing a light blue jumper? Not long before Kevin and Matthew found Karen and Nicola's bodies, a local engineer named Robert Gander made another discovery that would go on to be crucial. Robert had seen a woman on a footpath looking at something with intrigue before eventually continuing on with her journey. The path was a few hundred yards away from the den where the girls' bodies were found. Robert made his way to where the woman had been standing and spotted a blue sweatshirt lying on the grass verge. It was understandably dirty, though Robert could swear that it had some traces of blood on it. He informed the police and handed the sweatshirt into the incident van at Wild Park. The Pinto-branded sweatshirt was bagged and shortly after, the girls' bodies were found. The van was subsequently cleared in preparation for the double murder inquiry and the contents, along with the blue Pinto sweatshirt, were taken to Brighton Police Station, where for a while it was completely forgotten about. Bishop's pathological lying ultimately led to his downfall. He told some locals that he was the one who discovered the girls' bodies. He told others that he'd checked their pulses and was the one who realised they were dead. When questioned further by police officers, the story of his movements on the evening of October 9th were incredibly inconsistent. In one version of events, he said he'd planned to meet Marion Stevenson, a journey which would have taken him down the path where the blue Pinto sweatshirt was found. 
We've already mentioned how he said he failed to buy a newspaper in another version of events. Another version had Bishop arriving home to an empty house before putting a wash on and making his own tea, something quite out of the ordinary for a man like Bishop in the 1980s. Bishop said that Jenny arrived home at around 8.30pm and in another version of events he said he got home and watched TV, though he couldn't recall what was on. This is back in the 80s, remember, there was what? Three or four channels? I don't know if Channel 5 was even around back then. Crucially, Bishop explained to the officers how he'd found the girls' bodies, checked their pulses, and with great detail explained the position they were both in. Remember, there's no way he could have checked their pulses or known the exact position the bodies were in unless he'd killed them and put them in those positions himself. After changing his story, he was shown his previous interview notes and he changed it back again. During the girls' post-mortems, conducted by pathologist Dr. West, it was revealed their cause of death appeared to be as a result of strangulation. Given the volume and pattern of bruising, it was likely their killer had used his bare hands rather than a ligature. Karen and Nicola had been sexually assaulted, both before and after death, however Dr. West confirmed neither of the girls had been raped. Crucially, Dr. West managed to remove some fibres from the clothing of both girls' skin and clothes, including hair and fibres from clothing that didn't appear to belong to either of the girls. Bishop had several conflicting stories, no clear alibi, and no witness sightings of him between the significant hours of 6.30pm and 8.30pm. He was finally arrested on October 31st, 1986, after Scottish Scenes of Crime Officer Eddie Redmond was made aware of the Blue Pinto sweatshirt and tested it for traces of blood. The result came back as a weak positive result, but the proper protocol had not been followed. What Eddie should have done is had the testing sanctioned by the incident room first, rather than just doing it off his own back. Eddie arrested Russell on the suspicion of murder of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway at around 11.20 on the morning of October 31st. Frustratingly, the blue Pinto sweatshirt could not be confirmed as belonging to Russell Bishop. No witnesses could confirm as having seen him wear it on the evening of October 9th. Having said that, 11 green fibres and 4 pink fibres were found on the blue sweatshirt. They were indistinguishable from Karen's green sweatshirt and Nicola's pink sweatshirt respectively. There were also many ivy hairs found on the blue sweatshirt, which matched those found at the den where the girls' bodies were found, as well as animal hairs, though it couldn't be confirmed as to whether the hairs belonged to Bishop's dog Misty or not. Despite finding all of the above, none of the girls' hairs were found on the blue sweatshirt and none of Bishop's hairs were found on the girls' clothing. Perhaps the biggest mistake happened when three hairs and a fibre were found on Nicola's stomach. They weren't examined further. It's unclear why such a huge oversight was allowed to happen. Whatever the reason, that, along with a catalogue of errors and a lack of any hard evidence, led to Russell Bishop being acquitted of sexually assaulting and strangling Nicola and Karen. That was on December 10th, 1987. The jury only deliberated for two hours before coming to that decision. Here's a list of some of the mistakes made which led to Bishop's release. The temperature of the girls' bodies was not taken. It's meant they couldn't accurately state the time of death. The prosecution couldn't challenge Bishop's alibis on the night of the murders as a result. Fingerprints left by the strangler were not taken. The blood samples discovered on Karen's underwear were not analysed. The sweatshirt was not preserved correctly. 
which meant that Bishop's defence team was able to cast doubt as to the reliability of it as a piece of evidence. Bishop went on to sell his story to disgraced UK tabloid News of the World for a sum of £15,000. Interestingly, during the trial, the prosecution read out a series of sexually explicit letters written by Bishop to a 13-year-old girl whilst he was away in trial. He wrote, I know how old you are, baby. Hee <laughs> hee. 16 or 17 more weeks and I'll be out up to no good again. I just hope you can handle it because I'm a man, not a boy. I know you've been looking for it for a long time from me. Bishop urged the young girl to go on the pill in preparation for his release. The trial was briefly halted when Bishop exclaimed, It's not agreed evidence. Stop it right now. The now free Bishop went on to commit a frighteningly similar attack on another young girl in Whitehawk, a suburb in East Brighton, in February 1990. The seven-year-old girl, whose name I won't be mentioning, was roller skating to a local shop when Bishop suddenly grabbed her and threw her into his car. Case prosecutor Brian Altman QC said, As she passed, the defendant grabbed her and lifted her into the boot, telling her to be quiet and threatening her that he would kill her if she was not quiet. Bishop then drove around 10 miles northwest to Devil's Dyke, a legendary beauty spot on the South Downs. He proceeded to strangle the girl on the back of his car seat before stripping her naked and sexually assaulting her. Brian Altman went on to say, After sexually assaulting her, the defendant took the girl's unconscious naked body from the car and dumped her in dense, gorse bushes in the woods where he left her for dead. He threw the rollerblade she had with her into the woods before driving away from the scene. Amazingly, the girl managed to survive the attack and was able to identify Bishop by remembering the black trousers he'd been wearing. A taxi driver discovered black tracksuit bottoms on Devil's Dyke Road the next day and a neighbour said Bishop had been wearing them the day of the attack. Seaman recovered from the girl's vest contained DNA, which had a 1 in 19,000 chance of not being Bishop's. Bishop said, I did it to belittle and shame her, because I was bloody angry at everyone, at her and everyone who had done that to me. Brian Altman's response to that claim was as follows. This is all rubbish. This is all lies. You attacked that young girl because you had a sexual interest in children. It had nothing to do with three years of hate, but everything to do with Russell Bishop and your character, didn't it? There are very good reasons for what I also suggest are obvious and striking similarities between the two offences because the killer of those two girls in October 1986 was the same person who attacked the seven-year-old in 1990. And that man is you. Mr Justice Sweeney handed Bishop a life sentence for the assault of the seven-year-old girl with a minimum term to serve of 14 years. Prior to 2005, the law of double jeopardy meant that in the UK, a person could not be tried for the same crime twice. With the passing of the Criminal Justice Act 2003, that all changed. One of the main reasons was the Stephen Lawrence murder case. This involved the murder of a black British teenager and a subsequent second trial upon the discovery of new evidence relating to his killers. The following excerpt is from paragraph 4.63 of the Justice for All report presented to Parliament in July 2002. The Stephen Lawrence Inquiry report recognised that the rule is capable of causing grave injustice to victims and the community in certain cases where compelling fresh evidence has come to light after an acquittal. It called for a change in the law to be considered and we have accepted that such a change is appropriate.
after the evidence, specifically the Blue Pinto sweatshirt, was re-examined in 2005 as well as 2012 with modern techniques, it was essentially proven beyond all reasonable doubt that Bishop was wearing it on the night of October 9th, 1986. Furthermore, samples taken from the left forearm of one of the girls was re-examined in 2014. This led to the discovery of skin flakes containing DNA, which had a one in a billion chance of not being Bishop's. Bishop's 1987 trial acquittal was quashed in 2017, and his second murder trial took place in 2018. Prosecutor Brian Altman QC said during the 2018 trial, The conclusions they arrive at in not one, but several different scientific disciplines are devastating for the defendant because they prove scientifically not only that he was the wearer of the Pinto sweatshirt and that the garment was connected to his home environment, but also that it is linked to the two girls and therefore their murder. Quite simply, its wearer, the defendant, wore it at the time of the murders and he was their killer. Bishop informed his defence team to try and implicate Barry Fellows, Nicola's father, as being the true killer. Joel Bernathan, QC defending, said, At the time the girls went missing, there was someone very close to them who has no alibi. That someone had a guilty secret. He had been complicit in the abuse of Nicola, which shows an interest in paedophilic sex. In the end, it might mean he couldn't let Nicola Fellows tell the world about what had been happening to her. That person, I am afraid, was her father, Barry Fellows. The jury was also told about claims that Nicola had been in a child pornography film before her death, which her father had instigated and watched. Nicola's mother, Susan Iceman, formerly Fellows, said she was aware of such an allegation all the way back in 1986. Bishop's teenage girlfriend, Marion Stevenson, had made an allegation that Nicola had been in a pornographic film. Susan said, I heard of the allegation through speaking to people in the area and my police liaison officer. She didn't dare ask Barry about it, though. Marion Stevenson even gave evidence at the trial saying that she had seen Barry Fellows watching a pornographic video of Nicola being abused by Dougie Judd, Barry's friend and lodger at the Fellows' house. She said, Barry Fellows was sitting on the sofa and another man was to his left. I heard sexual noises and turned towards where the noise was coming from, the television. Nicky was on Dougie's bed with him. Dougie touched her and got on top of her having sex. They were both undressed. The second trial lasted roughly nine weeks. This time the jury, which was made up of seven men and five women, found Bishop guilty of the murder of Nicola Fellows and Karen Hadaway. It took them two and a half hours of deliberation on December 10th, 2018 to reach that decision. That's 31 years to the day after he was acquitted in the first trial in 1987. Clearly they felt the accusation of Barry Fellows was nothing more than a scapegoat technique used by Bishop and his defence team. The following day, on December 11th, 2018, trial judge Mr Justice Sweeney handed Russell Bishop two life sentences with a minimum term to serve of 36 years. On May 19th, 2021, Mr Justice Fraser handed Jennifer Johnson a six-year jail sentence for perjury as well as perverting the course of justice in Sussex between January 1987 and November 1987. Jennifer, if you remember, was Bishop's common-law partner. She admitted to lying about the sweatshirt in the original trial in 1987. Jennifer refused to leave her cell to hear a sentence and she's currently being held at HMP Bronzefield in Ashford, Surrey. 
It's the only purpose-built private prison solely for women in the UK and the largest female prison in Europe. Jonathan Fellows, Nicola's older brother, was unfortunately found dead at a homeless shelter in Worthing on September 5th, 2018, at the age of 46. A number of drugs were found in his system, including heroin, morphine, benzodiazepines and acetaldehyde. His death was reported as having no suspicious circumstances and it could not be determined if he intended to take his own life or if his death was an accident. According to an article I read from October 2021, Russell Bishop apparently has brain cancer and he's been told he has months, if not weeks, left to live. He's currently being held at HMP Franklin in County Durham, North East England. And that was the story of British murderer Russell Bishop. Thanks again to Cat Luth and Gary Robinson for suggesting that case. If you'd like to learn more about this story, I urge you to check out a book titled Babes in the Wood by Graham Bartlett with Peter James. Graham Bartlett is a former senior detective and Peter James is a best-selling crime fiction writer. The book was extremely helpful with regards to the research for this episode and I highly recommend it. I've got not one, not two, but three new reviews to read out this week. Thank you firstly to Apple Podcast user Shula Not Sheila for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. They said, Been listening to British Murders since last year and still not heard one bad episode. Absolute gold this. Cheers for those kind words, Shula Not Sheila. Thank you also to Apple Podcast user Alice Gorton 19 for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Alice said, I love the show, a great way to chill out on Boxing Day, keep it up. Thank you, Alice. And finally, thank you to Apple Podcast user Zifthead for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. They said, great podcast, very interesting and passes time. Would highly recommend. Keep it up, mate. Cheers, mate. Really appreciate your support and the thumbs up emoji right back at you. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show, have it read out on a future episode. In that case, you can do so on iTunes or Podchaser. All reviews help increase the show's exposure and they're greatly appreciated. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify now, so please do that too if, like me, your preferred podcast app of choice is Spotify. You can support British Murders each month by visiting patreon.com slash britishmurders. You'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as access to my scripts if you join up. If you prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can make a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. For more on British Murders, please check out all my social media channels and subscribe on YouTube. Merch is available to purchase at Teespring. The link is in the description. And please continue to email your case suggestions to me. The email is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on social media. You'll get a shout out for your efforts. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.